Father, we thank you so much that uh, you will not be shaken. The God of Israel never sleeps, he never slumbers. He will not let my foot slip, but he will uphold me by his righteous right hand. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, though he fall, he shall not be cast out, for the Lord upholds him by his hand. Father, we claim those promises today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are doing a, just taking a pause from our Church Leadership 101 sermon series to do a sermon today called Seasons. You know, life can seem often meaningless, difficult, and chaotic. You know, at the moment, that's what it seems like. You know, the coronavirus numbers, they continue to increase. Every day, as you look at Sydney, it seems like the number is going up, up, and up. You know, coronavirus has come into Mildura. It's come uh, very, very close to us. Uh, You know, who would have thought that you would see the opera house like this, the streets just absolutely deserted? You know, I was watching a current affair this past week, and on a current affair, they were speaking about how in Melbourne there have been 200 days of lockdown. And these business owners were just breaking their hearts about what that has done to their business. You know, and on top of that, obviously, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen, you know, how with the U.S. troops moving out of Afghanistan, we've seen the Taliban come in and they've taken Kabul. And it's just heart-wrenching to see these scenes of people just fleeing from Afghanistan. You know, people, you know, crowded into planes trying to get out of the country. You know, it does seem at times like life can seem meaningless, it can seem difficult, it can seem chaotic. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon takes on this question of how to respond to the meaninglessness and chaotic nature of life under the sun. In the very first chapter, he, he, he spells out in a poetic form that, yes, it does seem like life is meaningless, meaningless. He says it seems like it's just a chasing after the wind. Now, in the first two chapters, Solomon then goes on to chronicle for us his quest for meaning in this meaningless world. Firstly, Solomon tried to find meaning in knowledge. Solomon says this, he says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. You know, if you know anything about Solomon, you'll know that Solomon was considered the wisest man who ever lived. When God asked Solomon, that he's, when he said to Solomon, I'll give you anything you want, do you know what Solomon said he wanted? He said, I want wisdom, God. I want wisdom. And so, but yet Solomon said this, he said, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, but I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know, it is true, isn't it? That the more you seem to know, the more you seem to know about the complexities of life, the difficult it is to realize how those, diffi- those complexities are ever going to be solved. You know, in year 12, I, was, um, uh, I did economics, and our economic teacher used to spell out all these difficult economic problems. And I used to come home to my dad as a farmer, and I used to you know, say, Dad, these are his these problems, these economic problems. And my dad would say, well, that's simple, Timon. These can be solved this way. And so I'd go back in confidently to my economic teacher and say, my dad said that you could just solve the problem this way. And my economic teacher used to say, yes, 
There is often an, a, an easy solution to complex problems, and it's often wrong. <laughs> you know, it's true, isn't it? When we look at the complexities of life, how is the problem in Afghanistan ever going to be solved? How is the unequal distribution of wealth among developing countries and, already, and developed countries, how is that problem ever going to be solved? Well, then Solomon tried to find meaning in the pursuit of pleasure. Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And then Solomon chronicles the different pleasures that he tried. He tried wine and alcohol. He tried achievement. He built various things. He tried possessions. He talks about all the gold and the silver that he had. And then he tried sexual pleasure. Solomon said he had many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. If you know anything about Solomon, you know that Solomon had a harem with a thousand ladies in it. And Solomon said, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep for them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. But Solomon found out what many people find out, that there is no meaning in pleasure, in just the pursuit of pleasure. Solomon then goes on to say, he says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, all was meaningless, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, then Solomon tried to find meaning in moral living. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly now, what he means here by wisdom is skillful living. He tried to be a moral person, tried to tick all the right boxes and follow all the rules. And, and Solomon said readily, he admitted, he said, and then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So it is better to live a moral life than an immoral one. But you know what Solomon then ultimately found? He said, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happens to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I've said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hate life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. As good as you try to be as a person, you will be forgotten. You know, can you remember your great-great-great-grandparents? You, do you know their names? Probably not. Well, then Solomon tried to find meaning in work. He says, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. But then Solomon says, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon tried to find meaning in the pursuit of knowledge and in, in seeking to know everything. He tried to find meaning in the pursuit of pleasure, filling his hearts with all these sorts of pleasure. He tried to find meaning in the pursuit of moral living, and he tried to find meaning in the pursuit of work and achievement. But what he found is that it was all just meaningless, a striving after the wind. So is all of life just meaningless and mundane? Should we just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Well, Solomon actually goes on to say, no, we should not approach just a hedonistic approach to life where we eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Because while it is true 
that life is meaningless under the sun from a human perspective, there is another way to view life, and that is that all of life is lived under a sovereign God. You see, why life under the sun, S-U-N, from a human perspective, when you look at it, is just meaningless, mundane, a striving after the wind. When you live your life under the S-O-N, the Son of God, you can have meaning and purpose in your life. And so Solomon goes on into chapter 3, which is where we're going to study today. So open up your Bibles, if you haven't got them open, to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. And he goes on to interrogate his propositions that life is meaningless. And the first thing he says is all of life is lived under the sovereign God who orders the various seasons of our lives. And he writes this beautiful poem, this beautiful poem, probably you've heard this poem before, you know, there is a season for everything. It's, it's such a well-known poem. Now, if you're like me, you can't help but read that poem and hear the bird song, turn, turn, turn. You, who knows that song? Turn, turn, turn. For every season, there is, uh, you know, under heaven, turn, 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 turn. Beautiful song written in 1965 by the birds. And so, you know, Solomon, in 11 sort of phrases, what he does, so in 14 statements, Solomon affirms that God is at work in our individual lives. He's seeking to accomplish his will. And all of these seasons are ordained by God, and he is working in them all. Even the deep, difficult seasons, the seasons of death and weeping and mourning and loss, Solomon says, God is still working. In fact, Solomon will go on to write this. He will say, he has made everything beautiful in its time. But how can loss and pain be beautiful? How can it be beautiful, loss and pain? How can those seasons be beautiful? Well, Solomon says, loss, brokenness and pain is not beautiful in itself, but in what it accomplishes in us and at the changes that it brings through us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, Peter writes this. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, when they actually refine gold, what they do is they put it into a furnace and they heat it up. And as they heat up the gold, all the impurities of the gold rise to the surface and then they wipe away the dross and they have pure gold. You know, all of the difficulties, the pain, the hardship that we experience, what we go through, it's God is using that to actually refine our faith, to purify our faith. Um, for this past month, I've been reading at nighttime, the, um, the biography of Hudson Taylor. Here he is, missionary to China. Uh, he was an amazing man. He was one of the first missionaries who, 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 you know, who decided that in order to reach people, you, you needed to dress like those people. And so he was one of the first people to dress like a Chinese person when he went to China. He also believed in setting up indigenous churches that he would go in, he would evangelize a region, and then he would set up an indigenous church in that region. And he was a man of amazing faith. Amazing faith. He believed in the power of prayer. 
when he would spell out to congregations and he would come and preach about China Inland Mission, he would say at the end of his service, he would say, don't take up a collection, don't take up an offering. This one time, this pastor said to him, you know, Hudson, you should really take up an offering because the people will be moved by what you say. And he said, no, I don't want them to take up an offering. I want them to go home and pray and offer themselves to God. So he was a man of great faith, but also he suffered great loss. Four of Hudson Taylor's children died on the mission field. He lost Grace, his first daughter, at the age of eight. And when he lost her, he said that God had picked a flower. Maria, his wife that he cherished, contacted, contracted cholera. And while she was giving birth to Noel, their youngest, Noel died. And then two weeks later, Maria died. Ten days later, after Maria died, he wrote to his mother and he said this, He, that's God, and he only knew what my wife meant to me. He knew how she was the light of my eyes and she was the joy of my life. And later on, he wrote, How lonesome were the weary hours when confined to my room. How I missed my dear wife and the little pattering footsteps of the children. And then I realized how the Lord had made that passage so real to me. Whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst. And he says, 20 times a day, as I felt the thirst of my heart coming back, I would cry to him. And when I called to him, day or by night, how quickly he came. So much so, he says, that I wondered if Maria, who'd been taken to heaven, was enjoying as much of his presence that I was enjoying in my lowly chamber. Warren Wearsby says, the inference is plain. (laughs) He says, if we cooperate with God's timing, life will not be meaningless. Everything will be beautiful in its time, even the difficult experiences of our lives. So as we journey through Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we find that Solomon has adjusted his sights He no longer looks at life as just being under the sun. And what he found is what you will find when you bring God into the picture, when you bring God into your picture, into your life, you will see life from a new perspective. You see, with God in the picture, we see this. We see that life is a gift. Solomon says this in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 3, I have seen the busyness that God has given the business that the God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He says, everything that God has given, everything that man has is a gift from God. You know, James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Everything we have is a gift from God. When you bring God into the picture, you see that everything you have in your life is just a gift from God. And so life is a gift And our soul cravings are only satisfied in Him. Solomon goes on to write this. He says, and He has put eternity into man's hearts. You know, it's true that wherever you go in the world, you will find that people, there is this universal craving in people's heart for meaning. This universal craving that there must be something more than just physical existence. But what Solomon goes on to say is this. He says, He has put eternity into the hearts of men yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So while every person has eternity in their hearts, that's still not enough. It's still not enough to bring them to God. 
Which is why he sent Jesus, why God sent Jesus. We read this in John 1 verse 4, John says that in him, that's Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of having one of my mentors, Jim Gibson, come to the church. And he preached one Sunday from 1 John. And I love what he said. He said, you know, whenever people actually even hear the name Jesus, something goes off in their hearts. There's just something about the name, even the name Jesus, that goes off in people's hearts because everyone knows instinctively that in him is life. And his life is the light of men. He is the logos, as John says, the word, the reason for existence. And so life is a gift and our soul cravings will be satisfied, are satisfied in him when we come into relationship with Jesus. These soul cravings that we have, this eternity that's been placed in the heart of man is satisfied in Jesus And therefore, Solomon says, we can enjoy the simple pleasures of life. He goes on to say this, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So you can enjoy the simple pleasures of life because life is a gift. Your soul cravings are satisfied in him. Therefore, you can enjoy the simple pleasures of life. You can enjoy a cup of coffee and a conversation with a good friend. Who likes enjoying that? Isn't that great? You can enjoy a walk down at Glenelg. You can enjoy a nice walk down at Glenelg. You can enjoy watching the Crows. Not the literal football team, the Crows, because they're not very enjoyable to watch. But you can watch the birds. Do you know, I was walking past a magpie the other morning. And I just was gripped by the beauty of a magpie. How beautiful is that simple bird? I I just was like, Lord, how beautiful is that? And God has given us all these things to enjoy. So life is a gift and our soul cravings are only satisfied by Him. And therefore we can enjoy the simple pleasures in life while also trusting Him with the big issues of life. Solomon goes on to say this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been, and that which will be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Now, I think the New Living Translation, I think, helps make sense of this a little bit more. Let me read you the New Living Translation of that verse. It says this, I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it, or nothing taken away from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. What is happening now has happened before, and what will happen in the future has already happened before, because God makes the same things happen over and over again. Now, this is important because, you know, in life, there are many things that will make us fearful and afraid and anxious. And, you know, people have a lot of advice about what to do with our fear and anxiety. You know, Bobby McFerrin, he said, you should just, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, man. Don't worry about all these things that happen in the world. Just be happy. You know, another advice often given is don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. But how can you not worry and be happy when at any moment a comet might come and explode and 
You know, that's the end of planet Earth. Or how can you be happy, don't worry and be happy, when you don't know, maybe in a week's time, you might be in a car accident and you might suffer severe injury. How can you not worry and be happy, you know, if the polar ice caps are melting and that now means that there's going to be all this water that's going to be everywhere and, you know, we're all going to be underwater. How can you not worry? Well, the only way to not worry is if you have this view of God. I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God is over all things. And he's reigning and ruling over all things. And therefore, life is a gift. Our soul cravings are satisfied by him. And therefore, we can enjoy the simple pleasures in life while trusting him with the big issues of life. You don't need to stress and worry about the coronavirus. You can enjoy the simple pleasures of life right now this morning because God's got it. God's in control. That which has been will already be. God is that big and that over all things. You know, when I think of someone who trusted God like this in his life, I think of Joseph, right? For Joseph, things went bad for a long time, and it seemed like his life was going really, really bad. Like, you know, at first he was sold into slavery. He was cast down the bottom of a pit by his brothers. He then was, um, then Potiphar's wife made these false accusations against him, and he was sent to prison. And then while in prison, he helped interpret these guys' dreams, but they forgot about him, and he spent two more years in prison. But you realize the whole time, Joseph didn't become bitter about that. He didn't become bitter about what men had done to him. He didn't blame others for what was happening to him. But rather, he entrusted himself to God, and God eventually exalted him to second in charge of the whole of Egypt. And when he did meet his brothers, he blessed them. He didn't curse them. And he said this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good for the saving of many people's lives. You see, there is real freedom in that place. When you bring God into the picture of your life, you bring God into the picture of your life, you see that all of life is a gift. Our soul cravings are only satisfied by Him, and we can trust Him with the big issues in our lives. Well, then Solomon goes on to say this in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of injustice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon had to deal with the injustice of life. I mean, in the places where you would expect there to be righteousness and there would be justice, there were not those things there. Now, how do you deal with that? Well, Solomon says this in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. You see, there is coming a day where God will judge, where he will put all things right. Now, for believers, we are no longer subjected to God's eternal judgment. God's eternal judgment will happen at the Judge at the great white throne judgment mentioned in Revelation 20, it says all the unbelieving dead will be resurrected and they will appear before a great white throne. It is great, it is white because it's pure and it is a throne, it is a place of rule, a place of, a place of judgment. 
and books will be opened and God has been keeping an account of everyone's life and He knows everyone's life and what everyone has ever done. And you will be judged on that day according to your works. But the Bible says that every person has fallen short of the glory of God and so everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into hell, the second death. But fortunately for believers, they will not appear before the great white throne judgment because of this verse. And who's ready to say amen? There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Because Jesus paid the price and he shed his blood, we are no longer under condemnation. We are no longer under condemnation. We aren't going to come under God's eternal wrath because that was satisfied on the cross with Jesus' payment. But believers will be judged by Christ according to their works and they'll be given rewards on the basis of that judgment. So we won't be subjected to the great white throne judgment, but we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10, he says, so that whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim. Our whole aim is to please Jesus. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So what we do matters. It's not meaningless. You know, we can have this idea of grace that once you're under grace, what you do doesn't matter. How you live doesn't matter. Your obedience doesn't matter. Let me tell you, it does matter. It does matter. One day you will appear before Jesus and you will give an account. You know, I don't know if you like game shows, but I do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Australia's got talent and, you know, the voice and these sorts of things. And one of, half of the enjoyment of these programs is, isn't just watching the talent, but it's also seeing the judges make their proclamations. And half of it is actually about the judges and what they say about the talent. You know, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You know, you were saved by God's grace to be a someone, a child of God. That was completely grace. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it. You were saved by the grace of God, and now you are a child of God. And many of us know that and we rejoice in that truth, but we forget Ephesians 2 verse 10, where Paul goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And God has got a plan for every one of us for good works for us to walk in. So you were saved by God's grace to be someone, a child of God, and we are equally empowered by that same grace to do something. John Bevere, in his book, Multiply Your God-Given Potential, he says this, he says, I'm firmly convinced that when we stand before Jesus at the believer's judgment seat, where we'll be rewarded for our labor as Christians or suffer loss for our neglect, he will open this book and say, let's compare how you actually lived to the original plan my father and I had in mind for you. Remember what he says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, that he has planned these good works, that you should walk in them. In regards to our specific calling, 
Bavia writes, we won't be judged on what we did, rather on what we were called to do. What was God calling us to do? Now, that's sobering. Now, John Bavia goes on to say this, he says, at this point, you may feel a little panic. (laughs) Please don't. God is more passionate about you completing what He has called you to do. And if you've got out of the will of God, He wants you to come back in. He wants you to repent, turn back to Him, get back into the will of God. And the process of growing into the fullness of your calling is a journey, not a one-time event. So fight the urge to give in to impatience and fear. And so life is not meaningless. What you do is not meaningless. It will be judged by Christ one day and you'll be given rewards according to your faithfulness one day. Now, this is of great... Um, this is of great comfort to me. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, how are you to regard like preachers and teachers and leaders? Just as servants. And he then says, you may judge me, And he says, but I don't even judge myself. Not that I have anything against myself, for I know that there is only one judge. And when he comes, he will render correct judgment and the motives of people's hearts will be exposed on that day. At the judgment seat of Christ. And so life is not meaningless, but it's lived under a sovereign God who orders our lives, who orders the seasons of our lives, who has put eternity into our hearts so that we will seek and be satisfied by Christ and to whom we will one day give an account. So here are some applications for you this morning, for us this morning. Look up and trust Him in the season that you're in. If you're in a difficult season right now, look up. Trust Him in that season. That season will not last forever. There are different seasons in our lives. So look up and trust Him in that season and cooperate with Him so that you can learn what He's seeking to teach you through that season. Secondly, look out and be thankful for the life that He's given you. You know, as I said, all of life is a gift. And since our soul cravings are satisfied by Christ, we can enjoy the simple things in life. And we don't have to worry. God's going to take care of the big things. He's God. We don't have to be God. So look out and be thankful for the life that you've got. And then look ahead and live for the well done of the Lord Jesus. As you live your daily life, remember that one day I'm going to appear before Him. And so I need to make it my aim, as Paul says, my ambition, my aim is to please God. An audience of one, to please Jesus. That's, that's the ambition of my life. Well, let's pray, shall we? Father, we just come to you now. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, we do live at a time where it seems like life is meaningless and difficult and chaotic. And yet, Lord, we thank you that all of life is a gift. And you, Lord Jesus, are so satisfying. Knowing you satisfies our souls. (laughs) As Hudson Taylor said, you give this river of living water 
that quenches the, the deepest reaches of our soul. And Lord Jesus, we, we pray that you might help us to live lives of thankfulness, enjoying simple pleasures, even while trusting you in with all the big things that are happening in our world at the moment. And you can be trusted, God, because you're in control. You're over all things. You reign and you rule. And so we affirm that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.